Welcome, movie lovers, back for Anatomy Movie. That's right, it's the greatest show on digital TV. And of course, we're talking about the Hugh Jackman's Greatest Showman. So stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. And today we dance movies. Yes. We have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. Dancing yes. away. Oh, I loved this movie. And I'm Phil Svitek. We are missing this in action, Dimitri Panos. Yes. But that won't stop us now. It won't. It won't. Definitely won't. You know, I can safely say, of all the people I know... Mm-hmm. They are raving about this movie. Yes, uh, I'm, I was raving about this film since it's been filming. Uh, uh, I I loved this film so much, so much, and we'll, we'll definitely get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Uh, if you're joining us for the very first time, welcome to the show. We've got lots to discuss. We're going to talk about. The movie, the behind the scenes, all of that stuff. If you're joining us again, welcome back. And as always, one, understand, we believe you've seen the movie, so it's going to be Mm spoiler-filled. We believe at this point you've probably seen the movie multiple times, (laughs) given this (laughs) movie. Like I have. And, of course, if you guys want to follow along, we have a rundown attached in the description so that way you get all the facts that we don't always get to talk about, but we certainly pull from when we do. So nonetheless, as we always do, Marissa Serafini, kick us off with overall thoughts for this movie. Yes, okay, so I've always been a fan of Hugh Jackman. <laughs> you know this. Um, so I knew about this film when it was filming, and knowing it was going to be a musical uh, when the trailer came out, in June of 2017, I kid you not, I watched the trailer about 30 times. I studied it like nobody's business. I got so naturally excited for it because it was the first visual idea of what this film was going to be. And then at the end of the year, when it finally came out, I wanted to see it so bad. And I finally did. It exceeded all my expectations with the writing, with the music, with just the visual spectacle of what this whole film was. I had such high expectations for this film, and it exceeded it with, like, like nobody's business. I downloaded the soundtrack while I was still in my seat while the credits were rolling in this film. Uh, and then I, I have not stopped listening to the soundtrack. If you go on my iTunes play count, I have seriously listened to this track now more than 100 times. I'm unhealthily obsessed with this film. I'm so excited to talk about it. And I convinced you. I was like, I love this film. I have to talk about it. And now we are. Well, you didn't have to convince me. I did see it. I liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a matter of picking a movie that we were going to do. And you said this one. So I was like, okay. Yes. (laughs) I don't think there was much convincing one way or the other. (laughs) It was more, this is how it happened. Now, one of the things I enjoyed, um, I did enjoy the movie overall. I thought it was great escapism. I think it was good counterculture to uh, otherwise, for many people, somewhat of a shitty year. (laughs) Yeah, it Uh, was. Both in the real world, let's say, and also in terms of film, I think in film there's been a reflection of that. And I think it's 
you know, I, it's been said that sometimes even satire is having trouble because how do you satirize? Satire takes something that's real and makes it even worse than reality by making it funny. But how do you do that when people are perceiving the reality to be as low as it can go? So it's been an interesting year for sure. But nonetheless, and so so this was a, a breath of fresh air to see, and it's just so fun. Now, the, the only downside I do have to it, um, you know, I thought it could have definitely been a little bit more truthful to P.T. Barnum. Mm-hmm. I don't mind that it isn't. Just change the name. That's all. But in, in, in that aspect, you kind of wonder about it, and it's so meta that, of course, the person who was... Just basically creating entertainment, then the movie in itself is fake. Or, for lack of a better it's term, it's based on some. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Some truth. By no means is it biopic. No, no. Um, but I, I like the idea that they they did show where and how it started. Um, eventually, what it came to be, the Ringling Brothers, and what people know today of what the circus is. Um, I like that they did, actually did show the or, origins of how it all came to be. Um, yeah, it's not going to be, um, and we'll get into the story, but it's not going to be as true and authentic to the person. And if you actually do the research, P.T. Barnum, yeah, he may have been the greatest showman, but he may not have been the greatest man. No, uh, and, and but that's also why I think this film works so well because how do you tell a dislikable story of a dislikable man to everybody? You make it a musical. You make it something that's actually enticing and make people want to actually watch it. Because gotta be honest, kids and the younger demographic are not going to go to the movies thinking about the history of P.T. Barnum and that he used and exploited a lot of people for his own self-being and how to get up and in, in, in raise himself in the world. You're not going to go to a movie for that type of story. You are going to go for the visual aspects of a music uh, musical. You're, you're going for the musical, the, the visual spectacle of what the actual show is and the colors and the lights. Call the colored lights. Yeah, you're going to go for that. So well, maybe not the story, but for the spectacle. Musicals they're having a resurgence. It's not like musicals have, you know... They've never died. They just haven't been as great as they could be. Well, it hasn't... We're not in the Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire days, and we'll talk about them because they're a huge inspiration in terms of uh, the dancing and presentation side Mm -hmm. of all of this. But nonetheless, you know, La La Land was a big resurgence as part of that. And you're right. Musicals haven't died away. Um, Les Mis being another Hugh Jackman one just... Not recently, but within yeah. this te- decade, let's say. That was 2012, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it, it's always great when you do get a musical because it, it somewhat is a breath of fresh air, much like if you get a great Western nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's counter-programming, if you will. 
It definitely is kind of programming because right now is when all the Academy Award movies come out, which tend to be more serious, tend to be longer, tends to be uncomfortable. Um, they're they're made for the stories or the technical aspects. This one is a feel good, and you know me, I'm such a sucker for the feel good. <laughs> I mean, hello, loves Hallmark, loves Hallmark. I wasn't gonna say, but you did. Uh, love well. Hallmark, but feel good, and, and this movie just. I had all the feels in this film. I, I felt upset at these times. I felt happy and elated at these times. Um, it was phenomenal. You're a regular Katy Perry. Catching <laughs> all the feels. All the feels. All yes. right. I well, love Katy Perry, too. <laughs> this movie has been in, in per- development and gestation for seven years, since 2009. Yeah. And part of that is, Jackman said, you know, that the studios were hesitant to take on something like this, to, to take on shot at something th- this original, if you will, this, this kind of unique. And uh, I wouldn't disagree with him, but I'm glad in some sense that it, you know, f- for whatever it's worth, the seven years hopefully was put, th- I mean, the end result is great. So if it took seven years to get there, then you know what, so be it. Right, and I mean, it started off as just the regular story. It was actually Hugh Jackman's idea to turn it into a musical, which obviously is a whole turning point of just how this film came to be. Um, Again, if you're just going to watch a a simple story of P.T. Barnum, no one's going to watch it. But if you're going for an actual show, well, not not as many people are going to watch it, and it's not going to be as marketable as a musical is. Such as this one. That I don't necessarily, I, that I don't disagree with you. Um, well, you know, he, he was fascinated by this. And when you, when you talk about Jackman, he's a huge driving force. And I don't think it's any secret that he, he enjoys singing and dancing. Yeah. I mean, he started, he is a theatrical performer. He started off in theater before he even got X-Men. He was in so many musicals in Australia that people may not know of because they know him from... For other things in America, but he was bigger in all, in Australia first for his theatrical background. Yeah, very fascinating history. And then as far as, you know, so he's kind of the catalyst to all of this. Um, but secondary to that, a lot of great people ended up working on this that have done a lot of amazing work. Yeah, I mean... In musicals and movies otherwise. Yeah, Jenny Bix wrote the original draft of this, but Bill Condon was signed on later to rewrite, and Bill Condon, he just directed Beauty and the Beast, which was humongous. That was one of the only musicals that crossed the billion-dollar mark, and one of the only films of 2017 that crossed the billion-dollar mark, so he knows what he's doing. And he he's also worked on Dreamgirls, and he did the 81st Academy Awards, which that's the one where Hugh Jackman hosted and had the, the best opening number to. So it, he has the experience of musicals and how to actually properly make them, what people are looking for them. I'm glad he got on board. Yeah, and obviously the, the result shows. And I think overall just, you know, because you, you can take a musical and and also not do it in the best way, meaning like the, if the story isn't, because the music has to service the story, the story has to service the music. And if those elements overall aren't connecting, it, you know, the story to me, 
is such a good feel good story that you just I mean, I, I've seen people that hate, hate musicals mm-hmm. leaving this theater dancing and such an upbeat, joyous thirst for life. Yes. That it's unprecedented to me. You know, I can't I can't recall. I'm sure there is movies for other people like that, but I can't recall a time in my life that I've seen that. Yeah. And I've talked to a, a few people who say they claim they, quote unquote, hate musicals. But when they watched this, they they left the theater so happy. And actually enjoy this and consider this film one of their favorite movies of 2017 as well. It was like, you see, there's something, something about this film is really hitting with people. Well, let's try to, let's try to break it down. It's, um. There's so much. (laughs) There's so much. Now, interestingly for me, I wasn't there for the the La La Land breakdown. So. I was. I'm. I'm for the first time treading into how to break down musicals because where do you start? Do you break down the music first or do you do the story? Let's start with the story and then that'll tie into the music, of course. We could do the stories and the characters that tied in with P.T. Barnum's life, sure. So in essence, it's the story of how uh, in this, and I'll I'll say in this movie. So anything I say, understand it's in the purpose of this movie. I'm not actually given history unless I say this is history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and P.T. Barnum, how he started the circus and also got the love of his life, if you will. Yeah, charity. So, and, in, in, you know, we start off kind of with a Oliver Twist type of beginning. Uh, he, you know, he's there, he's poor, he falls in love with a girl and we go from there and he goes to America and then things take off from there and things are good and well and then trouble hits and so forth and and then we rebuild if you will yeah and i think it it's great because you show they did a great job of establishing pt barnum at a younger age that he was always an ambitious person he always had big dreams of a better life and it was kind of a foreshadowing of what he was going to do to get to that dream and achieve it and i i like that and it was also told through a musical you know a musical number I think it it was just great because it it was this just running theme with P.T. Barnum's character of why he keeps doing it. And once he's achieved it, what do you do to maintain it? Yeah. Um, and that lifestyle that he's always worked for. Well, interestingly enough, what I liked about the movie was the fact that he never, at the end of the day, most of it was an illusion. Like he didn't benefit from all of the all of his perceived successes. Everyone else enjoyed them and money was made and so forth, but you know, he didn't necessarily get to keep too much of it. And the life that he had built was more for his kids and his wife, not necessarily himself. And as we saw, you know, he was struggling just to keep that. Right. Um, and I think that that showed a humanistic side to P.T. Barnum. He, he never wanted to go back to being poor. He wanted a better life for his his kids, and they had better childhood because he didn't have a great childhood. That's very believable, and that's actually very honorable. Just as a, a parent doing whatever it takes to have and raise his family, and for them to be happy and successful. Yeah, and one of the things as you look at it to the benefit of the movie, telling all these various stories and, and these ideas. You know, on the surface, to tell a story like this, you can imagine taking two and a half, maybe even three hours. But the fact that in one song, in a reprise, you can get from England to to America, tell all the motives, pass time, and do it in a way... You're not just also telling them, 
through the visual aspect of everything, you're able to kind of get their motivations and, and the passage of time in a three-minute song. Yeah, and and it also just shows that in this, and in Million Dreams is, is the number, but in this, he, he had his ambitions. He You can see how he went from place to place, what he had to deal with, starvation, living on the street, but also he was very crafty and innovative of how he got letters to charity um how how he worked the system just for survival and it, it shows that he's willing to do anything um and i like that he was ambitious he was ambitious and you know I, i've heard some critics say okay you know the the, the nitty-gritty of being at that starting point they like to see that struggle but you know what i think we've seen enough and i think we're living in enough that you know what? Sometimes it's good just to go from point A to point B and be like, oh, wow, here's what if I can achieve. And just the, the romanticized version of what life could be. Mm-hmm. He was a dreamer. Yes. Big dreamer. We could all benefit from some dreamers. Yeah. Yeah. But also, he just ambitious, you know? Um, so let's talk about this idea of, well, you know, and this pertains to both real life and, and the movie. Early on, he has a lot of failures, mm-hmm. and he's never taken serious for um, what he is trying to achieve. And so as far as the movie's concerned, the circus really isn't necessarily his first choice. It's just kind of what's left. Yeah. And oftentimes, that is inspiring because the first thing that we set out to do, most oftentimes, isn't the thing we end up doing. It's just, it's just along the path is what got us there. And that's what, to me, is so interesting about following a journey versus anything else. Yeah, and going off of his failures, that shows his creative side of how does he change it to actually become successful. Where he started off as a museum, and I don't think a lot of people knew that, um, that there there was an actual museum. and But the museum was such a, a failure because I, I did like the idea where the, he dropped the line, like, um, the wax figures, they're all the rage in, in Europe. Because at the time, that's true. That was the Victorian era in, in England, and it's huge. Here's an, I'll like another example. Penny Dreadful covers a lot of wax figures. That was Victorian England era. Um, this is happening at the same time, but over in America. So I understand, like, he, he just wants to, like, have a successful idea that's already working, but it's not working for him. How does he change it so it does work? And I, I love the involvement of his kids. Of you, you have to bring life to it. You have to bring it something that people actually do want to see. Yes. And the idea that he was always trying to fit in, and it wasn't until he stopped trying to fit in that ultimately he found his success. And I like that the moral of the story that's what it becomes and that's a great message because oftentimes i do see a lot of people trying to fit in a certain mold uh, and you can apply it to many different things you could apply it to the lgbtq community you can apply it to men versus women you can apply it to all sorts of different things everyone's always trying to be something they're not or be accepted by other you know the other half if you will but just be who you are and stop focusing on that and you'll achieve what you were meant to achieve. Right, it's like be be your true self. And I think in the number a Million Dreams, they did a great job of showing we had that moment where he's on the street and he's starving, but there was an oddity who helped him. And it, 
it clearly showed at a young age that he's gonna um he has respect for those type of people as well because they've helped him in his life so he starts this idea of he's gonna help them as well and that's when he first recruited um for his circus i appreciated that because you know he offered a different perspective he's like oh you're gonna parade me around like a freak no what if on the opening number you're there as a general and you're leading the pack and you're leading the charge and so forth and it's just kind of nice because you know they've never been paraded around uh in a in a in a beautiful way rather than a, a shitty way Right, it's to just think of like terms here. <laughs> right, right. It's to be like be shown in a, a way that's respectable, not just because of who you are and they're, they're going to laugh at you. Just give them a reason to actually look at you. Give them a reason to actually like you. Um, and I, I think he that was just a good men, twist on the mentality of it's not just for exploitation. It's just I'm showing you being your true self and actually enjoying something. Absolutely, and I, I, there's a side to it too. Uh, you know, often many sort of m- many people cite this as you got to have the ability to laugh at yourself, and so for for the people he recruited, they couldn't laugh at themselves because people were unjustifiably laughing at them every day. And then finally, by by allowing themselves to laugh, now others, for lack of a better term, could laugh with them, not at them, mm-hmm. and it broke start to break that ice down. Right, and also when he recruited Le- uh, Letty, the the bearded lady, um, it, it wasn't out of you know just for laughter and exploitation. It was more out of you have a talent, you have a singing talent. Let's show that you're beautiful, and other people laughed around them. But it's like, no, pe- people don't know you, but they're going to know you, and they're going to love you. And I I just love that mentality. You know, individuality. One of the most interesting characters for me in this whole thing was the critic. Because he, speaking of people who want to be themselves, he really wanted to like this, mm-hmm. but he felt the pressure of since he was the critic and he had to be the voice of the this people. other side. Well, the people wouldn't like it, and so he he kept writing in that way. But when he has that honest moment with PT, and he says, "You know, no, keep doing what you're doing. Don't give up." I, I felt that, was, too, was truly inspirational. Right, a celebration of humanity. And it may not cater to everybody, and yet it had it, um, it had a lot of barriers and obstacles and prejudice um, against it. But even the, the show was so successful, not to jump in, the show was so successful that even this critic could appreciate what P.T. Barnum was doing at the end of the day. Absolutely, and... I forget who said it, but the fact that they left... Oh, I, th- I think it was um, Zac Efron's character, um, Carlisle. Carlisle. Uh, people people go to Carlisle's plays excited and leave bored. They go bored to P.T. Barnum and leave more excited than they ever were. Yeah. yeah. People leave their places with a great deal happier, that, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, I watched this film four times, so if I didn't pick up on things, then something's wrong. I loved this film. I think there was there was a lot of great um, self-realization moments in, that were nicely told in certain lines. Um, just like what P.T. Barnum was doing, the, the joy and happiness that, that people leave the show is actually real and authentic. 
yeah, the content may not be great, but the feeling that you get afterwards is. Well, to me, that that's what all art is at the end of the day. That, that, and, you know, maybe at the time that's how it was, but just the realization of, oh, what you're doing is more or less fake than what this truthful is. It's like, no, at the end of the day, all art is ultimately just trying to achieve something, which is get a message across mm-hmm. however it can, whatever that message may be, and either it works or it doesn't work. And, you know, most oftentimes, it, you know, and to entertain people too. Yeah, so. definitely entertainment. If you don't leave this, this movie not feeling something, then something's wrong. Because I definitely feel this movie did its job, but you need to do your part. It's a soul barometer. <laughs> yeah, it is. It the, is. The more the more feels you get, the more soulful you are. Versus, well, I had all the feels in this movie. No feels equals no soul. Yes, yes, agreed. Uh, let's talk about uh, Zac Efron's character, Carlisle. Uh, I appreciate his insertion into the movie for the fact that he is a very tragic character and. Uh, you know, PT really is his inspiration in all of this and, and motivates him. And, and slowly, at first, he's kind of one foot in, one foot out, mm-hmm. not fully embracing what's presented to him. And then oh, as time goes by, the fact that he truly does um, speaks volumes and, and was greatly appreciated. Yeah. And I, I did love Philip Carlyle's character just for the person who he was. He was the bridge from the rich to the poor. From the the privileged to the non, and um, and I liked him because he was that torn character. He grew up in wealth and in privilege, and we'll talk about Jenny Lynn's character. But uh, he he had this mentality of no, your your show's ridiculous. I don't like it. He doesn't want to be a part of it. But once he actually inserts himself into P.T. Barnum's world, his his mentality changes, and you can see. His character was good because you saw both perspectives. You saw the rich side and you saw the the non-rich side. And yeah. People needed to understand that. They didn't. And, you know, ultimately he found the right balance. He was struggling with that a lot of, you know, what, what's the percentage breakdown? He, I think he found the right balance where he is that, as you said, he is that bridge. But I think now he can be a more effective bridge. Mm-hmm. If he was, let's say, a very wobbly one rope type bridge. Now he's the Golden Gate Bridge of bridges. <laughs> and he's, he's not a one-dimensional character by any means either. No. Um, and and I like that. And especially, uh, I forget Zendaya's character's name, but... Um, Ann Wheeler. We can certainly talk about that love story because that has, in fact, a lot to do with it because he's not only embracing his love for the circus, but now his love for someone he's not supposed to love necessarily yeah. And there's a lot of factors that go into it, money being the most obvious. Yeah. And just love for the people and the people he's actually working with and surrounded by. I did enjoy that because you saw that conflict within him. And when we had Rewrite the Stars, which was an awesome number, um, and we'll get into music later too. But uh, when they both had that realization that, hey, we want each other, but we might not ever be together, that was also very realistic too because he's, he's just torn. Um, he knows he shouldn't. It's kind of that forbidden love, but he, at the end of the day, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what people think. Nor should he. Yeah. 
And that's what one of the things I appreciated about this movie was the fact that everyone gets a literal and figurative voice, mm-hmm. which you don't often get. I mean, this is a very large cast overall, and so the fact that everyone is is represented and get the, gets their time to shine and the figurative voices heard in terms of what they're trying to say, what they're trying to accomplish, what their dream is, that it comes through and they're able to speak that um, is is evidence of great writing and just filmmaking. Yeah, and I just, I love the diversity of this cast. It it could be an ensemble. It is an ensemble cast when, when you have everybody in it. And just the oddities themselves, they were so individual. You remember who's who. They Some were bigger than the others. But you remember, like, who they were in the show. They played their part. Um, and th- they were just part of the whole story, the whole spectacle. Because if you didn't have them, then you wouldn't have a movie. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about that. Because I thought they did a nice job pacing it where PT's building them up. We're finding success. Maybe not the success that it deserved. But then all of a sudden, Jenny Lynn comes along, and it's almost like, oh, these quote-unquote freaks, we're going to put you off the side. You can still do what you want, mm-hmm. and you'll, you know, that's fine, but I'm going to, as PT, I'm going to focus my efforts here, because this is what's going to get me notoriety. Yeah, more, and I, I did, this is where I questioned PT Barnum, I was like, oh, what, it's like, you're, you're turning your back on your family, not really turning your back, but you're not paying any attention to your family. Um but I love Jenny Lind, the story. I love Rebecca Ferguson. She's freaking fantastic. I, I almost curse there. I, I love her. She's an amazing actress. Um, the White Queen, phenomenal. Uh, just the character, and, the, and Jenny Lind's actually a real-life person. I did not know her. I did not know of this person. Um, she is a Swedish. She's on money. She what? She's on money. Most yeah, people she, know her from money. Yeah, well... She, the, That's how famous fi- she is. Yeah, the 50 krona t- in, in Sweden. Uh, she's Swedish Nightingale opera singer. Apparently she was the the biggest celebrity back then. You know, she's like the Michael Jackson or the Prince of, of today, or back then. How about we say Madonna? Mm. All right, fine. I'm trying to get you a woman... <laughs> So that yeah, way we don't true. have to use okay. guys to compare women. Fair. Oh, all right. I like that gender quality. Love it. Love it. Um, sure. We could say Madonna. We could say Beyonce. That's sure. sure. Beyonce. She's like the Beyonce of today. Um, I I love this and just what she represented in P.T. Barnum's life. It's like he was building his life to get to a point and to get recognition from certain people. He was getting the attention, but not the proper attention. But once he inserted his life into Jenny Lynn's life. He's like, okay, now I'm actually around the people I actually wanted to be. Like, he's around the prestigious and the wealthy and the privileged. Um, I felt bad for Jenny of how he used her for his own self-gain. Yeah, I mean, he was he was honest enough that this is where I'm torn because he said to her, I'm going to make you... Right now you're big in Europe. I'm going to make you big in America and yeah. therefore worldwide. Big he was doing world. that. He was. Uh, so he didn't necessarily lie about that. He lied about his motive or he just doesn't state it, which I don't know if you have to. Yeah, but. his his ulterior motive. But also just Jenny Lind at this point in the movie and just that point 
and stage of her life. She was already established. She she has worked hard and got the recognition that she deserves. Um, so she was already there. Uh, I loved the moment where after her amazing performance of Never Enough. Oh my God. We'll, we'll get to the music, trust me. Um, but after her performance, when she even had a real moment with PT saying she came from, she came out of wedlock, brought shame upon her family. It's hard to understand wealth and privilege when you're born into it. It was so relatable because now knowing that she also came from poverty and from um, discrimination against people, she knows what it's like to start at the bottom and work her way to the top. And that's what P.T. Barnum related to. He's had to, it's like, what can he do to get to the point of where she is in her career? And that's why he clung on to her so hard. Yeah, and... You know, through that, not only did he forget uh, the oddities you call him, but also he forgot his family. Yeah. Who, you know, in, in in a sense, like he was trying to build them up, but as far as she was concerned, his wife, Michelle Williams, she was already there. She chose him. She mm-hmm. could have had the life that he'd always wanted, but she chose to be by his side. And then... You know, luckily, he never actually cheats on her apart from that kiss. And I don't even think emotionally he ever does. Apart from the fact, uh, I think dream-wise he does. You know, because it's yeah. the the wife was no longer part. The dream, she... she Wasn't she, in his world. Yeah. She, yeah. She, she, uh, the dream surpassed her. Yeah, and that's that was the unfortunate thing. Because Charity was so already established in her... Um, but we did see the moment where Charity has cut herself off from her family because she was not in connection with her parents when the parents finally met the grandkids at, uh, you know, the first time at the party. Um, so you know that Charity gave up that privileged life and she knew what she was getting into. But when P.T. Barnum realized, hey, these are the people I actually want to get to, um, that's where the conflict happened. It was like, what does he appeal to in both of these women? I'm yeah. glad it wasn't really a triangle because they, they kind of alluded that it could have been. I'm glad it never went there. And historical accuracy, they actually did have a Jenny Lind tour in America. That did happen. It was very successful, super successful. Um, and they didn't not f- – for the film, they didn't part in the best ways. But in, in real life, they actually did. So, um, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, so we kind of touched upon the various things. So why don't we start tying music into it? Because uh, a lot of the music will also, it's got the feels. <laughs> yes, it's got and, the feels and it, it, it adds to the characters. Absolutely. And, and just the story itself, why they're singing. Um, so... I'm going to let you lead this overall. <laughs> you can start where, wherever you would like. You've seen it four times. You, I bow down. <laughs> I have. I love this film so much, so much. Uh, let's, let's start with, I mean, we could talk forever about P.T. Barnum. So let's not start with him. Let's start with Charity, Michelle okay. Williams. Um, I actually didn't really know she was quite the singer. Holy crap, this woman has has pipes. Uh, she played Sally Bowles in Cabaret just a few years ago. So she she wanted to do this film because she was always doing drama. 
always do in in actual on stage performances, she was doing the same thing over and over and over again as a real production would every single day, night, day in, day out. She wanted something different, and this was one of the first roles that she did. Well, she also said she enjoys singing and dancing. She admits, I don't know how good I am, <laughs> but I like it. And so, you know, when she got this role, she she really wanted to get go out for this role. And, um, you know, I think I would love to see Hugh Jackman actually direct because it just from the sound of this and even before this particular movie, just everything we've always talked about, Hugh Jackman, he seems like such a big advocate of helping people and just being being their cheerleader essentially oh definitely their cheerleader and so when whether you talk about rebecca michelle or any other you know he's a lot of a lot of them kept saying like you know he'd be there watching us and being like cheering us on like yeah Mm -hmm. you got this and so that's just great to hear um that he was that involved when you know that really wasn't his role he he, he's got enough on his plate (laughs) to deal with and this is Hugh Jackman's passion project. That is clear from the get-go. Everyone says, like, this Hugh has been attached to, from the start. He was attached before the director, Michael Gracie, was attached. So this is Hugh's movie. We know this. Uh, and even Michelle Williams said when they were filming together, they just had a ball together because they both love singing and dancing. So there's the natural chemistry there and the commonality. Um, I, I like the chemistry. I'm trying to... You know me in past anatomies. I'm not not the greatest with uh, age gaps, but this one was actually pretty forgivable. So yeah, yeah, it it was. It, it didn't mind. It didn't bother me as much. But I did like her character. She she was vulnerable. She was real. And uh, when there's a line on the rooftop near the beginning of the film where Hugh was like, this isn't the life I promised you. And she's like, I have everything that I need. You see your two girls? It was like, we're happy right now. And they're they're basically broke and their roof is caving in and all that. It's like, she's happy. So she's just a good person. (laughs) Yeah, she came from wealth, but she's actually a good-natured human being. And I'm like, all right, you're cool, Charity. Love that. And she stuck with him for the most part throughout and until that the one moment she left, but it was more just out of I think frustration. And I appreciated that moment because it wasn't as you said, it wasn't the fact of the love triangle. She could have been she could have been upset about the kiss. She wasn't upset about the kiss. She was more so upset about you gambled away our money and now we don't have a house. Right. So And it was also she did she also said the line of like I would have done it with you she never mind i never minded the rest so long as we did it together because we do see the moment where pt barnum and charity were always together doing like through the trenches together but then he went off on his own with jenny lind and left her behind so yeah it was frustrating that she wasn't involved in his life anymore and his choices that's what frustrated her very very realistic very realistic indeed um like get to Rebecca Ferguson, love her. Can I? I can't say it enough. I love her. Um, and Jenny Lynn's character is very established. What I loved about this, and what people don't know, but it didn't actually bother me at all because "Never Enough" was my favorite song in this whole movie. It was, it was just fucking fen- phenomenal. Uh, Rebecca, she actually has music history. She went to music academy school. Um, she knows how to sing. But when she, yes, thank you, Juliet, when she performed this on stage, she actually did sing. She had her own playback in her ear. Um, 
and she she sung every took. Studiobith is a famous Swedish vocalist because Rebecca is also Swedish, just like Jenny Lind was Swedish. Um, she so she actually did study and perform every single take, and they did it over and over again. But she always knew that they might replace her voice or mix her voice with someone else because she even says it's one thing to act the as the greatest. <laughs> Uh, best singing opera singer in the world is another to sing as the best soprano singing opera in the in the world, and that's actually very realistic. She's like, if I were to fuck that up, I'd be so embarrassed. That's what she said. Um, her quote, and I I appreciate that she she was well aware of that. She's like, she, she just wanted to do the best acting job that she get, and girl, she sang it. She she sold it like nobody's business. When I watched this for the first time, I knew she was in this film, Rebecca Ferguson. I didn't know she could sing. She, she actually can, but no one's gonna hear it because they replaced it with Lauren Allen. Love this voice. I didn't mind knowing that she got dubbed over because this is such a better voice, anyways. It sold the character. It did. It really did. When well, I watched it for the first time, I had an audible like yes. In the movie. Well, the interesting part to me is the the, the person who's singing um, Lauren. Lauren Alred. She came in third in a singing competition. On The Voice. Yes. So she did not even win, and yet she's doing this. Hey, it's not about. Well, sometimes we and we see it all the time. Where maybe the winners doesn't have the best successful career afterwards. It's yeah. usually the runner-up or the the second person after that. And I'm glad because I didn't know about Lauren Elred. I didn't know. I don't watch The Voice. And now knowing that Lauren Elred did The Voice, I was like, crap! I should have probably watched it. Nah. There's there's so many other things that I am probably missing out on. Yeah. yeah. Yes and no. I just kind of. Not too seriously laugh of like, don't they feel dumb? Mm-hmm. Voting her or, or the American people, whoever like does the ultimate oh, like voting you, off. You didn't vote for the actual person who's successful. Yeah. I mean, talented. Listen to this. Yes, I love it. I love the song so much. I, I think I loved it more because it didn't know it was going to be like it, it came out of nowhere for me. I was not expecting it whatsoever. And I'm such a my my favorite singers of all time are McTeen McBride, Celine Dion, Whitney Houston, and Mariah Carey. All vocalists, all belters. They can sing emotional ballads like nobody's business that I know. And listening to this and watching it in the film was just another emotional ballad, and I was all for it, <laughs> all for it. Okay. There you go. Yes. All right. I enjoyed it thoroughly as well, and. Um, it was a nice mixture to it. I thought, like, if you really look at the scope of all the songs, it covers the gamut. Yeah. It's not just, okay, here's, we're not listening to a hip-hop soundtrack or whatever soundtrack. Um, you get all the colors of the rainbow. Right. And then I think that's also another reason why I loved this song, because it sounded so different from all the other numbers that we actually get in in this movie. We get the... The emotional ballad for this, we get the pop one at the beginning, we get the big grandiose one at the end, we get the love song in between, and this one is just like an emotional ballad that, if you listen to the lyrics of Never Enough, it's actually very relatable, 
um, to a person and just to Jenny Lynn's character. Like, you can have all the money in the world and all the gold, towers of gold, but you're, you're not going to be happy if you don't have the person you love with you. And I think that's very true. Well, emotionally, it's what, that, that's what Pete it was going through his mind and yet wasn't. It's mm-hmm. like the song he needed to hear but wasn't listening to. Yes. Yes. So, Agreed. That's, that's the irony of it all. Yep. So... All right, what what uh, next song are we talking about? Uh, yeah, we can talk about Zendaya and and Zach. We talk rewrite the stars with the whole, and then this can kind of go into production. But they rewrote Wirework. Yeah, <laughs> rewrite the stars was crazy. It was great to listen to, um, great to watch. My I watched this with my mom because I. I didn't. I don't want to say dragged her to the theater, but I was like, "We're seeing Greatest Showman, and you don't have a choice." Um, but she, this was her favorite um, number, and it's it's fun. It, it caters to the younger demographic that grew up with the the Disney era of these two, um, and just the lyrics of "Rewrite the Stars" as well. It's talking about they want each other, they can't have each other, but they don't care. Let's let's make their <laughs> own story. Um, what I, what I appreciate about, well, not not particularly this song, but when when Zac Efron talks about musicals, you know, he's not adverse to musicals. He's done them. Um, yes. Be high School oh, Musical, the trilogy. High School Musical. But nonetheless, you know, he says, it's, it's not like riding a bike. You don't get back into it just like that. There's a lot of work involved. And he, you know, whether it was Fred Astaire, whether it was Gene Kelly and so forth, uh, he did a lot of research into that, and, and he really studied and, and wanted to be part of this movie very much so. And, and this is, you know, what I think is part of the culmination of him and Zendaya's work. Yeah, and it's a, actually a really funny story. So Gracie, Michael Gracie, the director, uh, had talked to Zendaya a, a few times about this role and had her... Uh, it, it was Gracie's idea to have her do the actual trapeze. He's like, I want you to actually take lessons. I want you to actually have the physical build that, like, you're a trapeze artist. Like, I want your your body sculpted like you can actually do this. And then at the end, she actually did do it. She, she did, like, 90% of her trapeze artists. I mean, obviously, there are some shots she can't do based on insurance purposes. Mm. But... Uh, um, Zendaya didn't really know that she was casted until Zac Efron confirmed with Zendaya that she was because Gracie also had more side meetings with Zac Efron. It's like, hey, I want you to you know meet up with Zendaya, do a chemistry read, and see if it all works out. Um, um, see how you play off of each other. Um, what, exactly what chemistry chemistry um, tests do. And uh, but Zendaya didn't really have the clear confirmation that she was in it but gracie told zach afron that's like hey you should get to know zendaya before you start working with her so uh she found out that way and i think it's great and the chemistry was definitely there i think their storylines and the kiss at the end was definitely earned yeah i i agree with you 100 percent. and they did a fantastic job and in fact um when you talk about zach afron he has a interesting story uh so uh you know, the director has worked on a lot of commercials. And in fact, that's how it got Hugh Jackman, but, or he, how Hugh Jackman got him. Mm-hmm. But as far as Zac Efron, you know, he said, hey, you don't want to be part of this movie, essentially. And Zac Efron said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And then, you know, knowing that Hugh was also a part of it was a nice bonus. 
Yeah. And Zach and Zendaya did a lot of um, choreography for the, um, obviously, the rigging and all the harnessing of the the ropes. Um, Great to watch. They said it was so hard for them to film that it is actually impossible to do in one take because there is just so much rigging. Um, there, there were moments where she's on the trapeze in the, in the circle hoop and she's up in the air that takes one setup of a rig. And then there's another when they're spinning around, that's another type of setup. And then there's another one where Zach is actually up in the balcony and jumps onto the rope. That's a whole nother setup. They said it's actually physically impossible to do this all in one take because just the physical setup of all the rigs is in well, so many different places. I believe it. You know, this isn't in particular to this song, but there was one, um, I think it's the other side, right? Yes, the uh, other side. So when they sang that, it took them 56 take to get it correct. So, you know, there's so much going on. To, and part of it is when, when you film something like this, every angle has to be so precise. So even if you, let's say, could do it in one take... You wouldn't want to because you're looking for something very particular. And so the camera has to be positioned in a special rig or so forth to get that angle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that ne- ne- never was going to be a case of. Yeah, I mean, get it in one take. like Zendaya is flying around on screen all over the place. It is actually just it's amazing how they were able to capture all of it in one location and just use their surroundings, the stage. Um, that's also I don't want to say like. Watching this film four times, there's not one thing I disliked about the film. Honestly, I loved it so much. There was no law of diminishing return. No, there really wasn't for the three times after I watched it. Uh, I think one of the moments, if I think about it, and I don't really dislike it, but the Never Enough, which was obviously my favorite, they kept cutting back to Carlisle and and Ann Wheeler. And I'm like, "Can, can we just see Jenny Lynn? It's like, this is her moment. But you're, it's being outshone by these these two lovebirds. Fine, because when we finally get rewrite the stars, it's like they get their own number. No one interrupts them. It's not cutting away from anybody. Um, I don't want to say I disliked it. I just would have loved for everybody to have their own musical numbers. You know. Mm-hmm. But fair enough. The other side was also that the fun um, a fun number. This sounded more. Poppy, I guess you can say, because you had Hugh Jackman. I love the beat of it, the pacing of the song, and the the physical aspects that they had to do: jumping on the bar, um, playing around the piano, spinning on and, and standing on stools. And it was just, it was like this is the macho song. Yes, this is the 100%. two alpha guys singing. But it was fun and still visual. The timing of every shot and slapping money on on the bar. It was just so well done in sound design for this one. 100%. Um, what other songs, because there's so many songs, um, we can't get through all of them, but, or at least not individually in the length that you would love, um, what other songs stand out to you most? And of course, we'll talk about the Greatest Showman song, because that was a repeated Right, right, and that was at the beginning and the end. I'd have to say the the final, final like finale. I mean, Greatest Showman was the finale technically, but the last that realization moment, the uh, from now on, mm-hmm. when P.T. Barnum lost everything, but his family of oddities are still there for him, and they just had so much fun dancing. 
you can tell this would be a great movie turned into Broadway on stage and seeing all of them dancing, having fun. I love pub scenes where they're dancing like Beauty and the Beast does a great job with mm-hmm. Gaston. Um, this was probably the equivalent of how awesome that was. Um, them singing and dancing together. And just the, the emotional message that was tied to this number. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I appreciated the use of the um, the greatest show because it kept... I like when Coco does a similar thing where they use a song and it changes meaning throughout the movie mm-hmm. based on the emotional beats and, and where we're at in the story. And so I appreciated that um, whenever a movie can do that. Yeah. And a, and a song in particular. I loved The Greatest Show. Um, obviously, we started the, the show off with it. It was the best way to get into a film with the beats. Ah. Yeah, I was like, we're right, oh, we're, yeah. start, we're right here. Seriously, from the second I saw the 20th Century Fox logo on screen, I'm like, yep, I am all about this film. Uh, and then just, and I noticed it because I watched it so many times. Um, the the first few poses that Hugh Jackman's P.T. Barnum does is, are the same poses that Phil Carlyle does at the end of the film. Well, yeah, because he's taking over. Exactly. But people probably don't realize they're in the exact same poses. Like, oh, that actually took me a minute to, to realize. Uh, great opening start of how to get in. I was surprised that they started off so big because I was like, if this is, you know, the the main number, you're, you're already starting the film off. You're already started in the circus and no one knows who these people are cool to watch and get into a film i was like maybe it's too early for it i was like nope and because they they switched to the the younger pt barn when i think it was just excellent beginning and end book ends to the film with this number there's an old saying the greatest stories begin exactly where they end mm-hmm. so you know what it did it that's what this film did he passed on the baton to his protege and his yeah. protege didn't miss a beat. Phil Carlisle. Um, also, there was a moment uh, where someone else actually pointed this out to me. Thank you, Carrie Lane, one of our fellow hosts here. Uh, she she pointed out that when P.T. Barnum hands the cane over and the hat over to Carlisle, Carlisle at the end, and he runs out, he's in coattails, but then when he runs on stage and spins around, he's it switches to his own red jacket um, without coattails, like, Philip Carlyle got his own red jacket. And I'm like, that's brilliant. So it happened so fast that someone's clearly bound to miss it. I missed it the first two times I watched it. But I well, like, luckily you got it on the third one. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about who wrote the music and where we're at when the charts and so forth. Because, um, you know, oftentimes we talk about box office, right? And with uh, when it comes to musicals, there's a whole other side of money to be made. It is. Because uh, you got the music. <laughs> yes. Uh, so so we had Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. They are really coming up in this industry. Um, and these guys are only 30. I'm like, what are we doing? The, the, these guys are... Seriously, they are... I'm going to say, they are this generation of Stephen Schwartz and Alan Minkin. They're going to be huge. They're, they're getting big now. They're going to be astronomically huge. And I called it here. Um, they just won the Oscar for La La Land for last year. And then La La Land did excellent, even though it's not as great as this film. 
and and they got Tony nominations for Christmas Story, and they won um, a Tony for Dear Evan Hansen. So they're they're really um, getting the accolades and the praise that they have um, been doing as of late. They actually weren't originally hired. They had they had to audition one of their writing songs as a sample just to be in the consideration for this music. When Hugh Jackman's idea was like, we need music, we need songwriters. Um, and they pitched A Million Dreams as their song, their quote-unquote audition song to to get to win the bid for this. And back then, that's they haven't won the awards yet. No one knew who they were. This movie has been in development for a long time, so no one knew who they were back in 2000-whatever year that they finally decided to pick them. And from then on, they just they wrote every song, and they had to keep rewriting because characters would change, actors would change, the storyline kept changing so many times, so they had to change the music that would fit with the characters and the storylines. Um, they knew they had to write a song that transitioned P.T. Barnum from the youth to adults, and that's where A Million Dreams came in. Um, but yeah, and then This Is Me, which is obviously the biggest song out of this whole film that's getting the most well, it's been nominated um, for the Critics' Choice, Sam. Critics' Choice just won um, Best Song for Golden Globe, and it was the song that was used for the trailer, for the first international trailer. When I watched the trailer, because I watched it so many times, I was like, where is the song available? Nowhere was it was available. The only amount of, of the song you heard was in the trailer. There was no feature full length. Um, until they finally released it in October, and I freaked the F out. I'm like, finally, we have it. And it was just a great marketing tool to use that because it's such a song, power, powerful song. And it really helped sell the film because people love this song so much that people were like, if this is just one of the songs, I can't wait to hear the rest. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, it's going to win the, the, the Academy Award. You watch. You watch. <laughs> All right. Well, I call it now. It's the number one number one album on Billboard 200 and the number one album on iTunes in 65 countries. Which that's huge, and you have to realize. Yes, La La Land did excellent last year. It never hit number one on Billboard. It only hit two. That was a great musical movie. This is great musical. Yeah, this is great music. Um, I agree because La La Land, they were not the greatest singers. I hated the singing in La La Land. I hated it so much. And I think that's why I love The Greatest Showman more because we actually had good singers. And it takes, and I always say it, that uh, people have a higher tolerance for bad movie video quality but lower tolerance for audio. And the audio was horrible in La La Land. The, the singing was phenomenal in this one. So if you, if you can sell the music and sell the singers, you, you sell the movie. Visually, they did good too. Yeah, I mean they did. <laughs> they did great. Then that's also why it helped. But the singing is so not on par than what we had. We have Broadway singers in this movie. Yeah. We don't have Broadway singers in La La Land. No, and you know for the visual aspect, um, Gracie, the director. I mean he um, he comes from a commercial background. So when you do commercials, you're able to try out a lot of different tricks, and I think that helped it out visually. Um, but uh, unofficially, James Mangold did help, uh, according to reports, some of the reshoots and so forth. Now, he, he does get executive producer credit, so I tend to believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, James Mangold, having directed the last two Wolverine movies with um, Hugh Jackman, of course. Yeah. 
and and for the film because the the music was being created at the same time as the story was being created they had to put in placeholders for each musical number so like say for example there was a script and then in the actual script notes there'd be like and this is where pt barnum has this type of song and this is so they actually had placeholders because it was all just working together at the same time um and i think it it worked amazing amazingly well these a, guys are going to be huge. There's a great article in um, Hollywood Reporter talking about the success and, and not resurgence, but why why musicals are going to be bankable if people choose to make them right. Mm-hmm. And and I believe they're correct overall. Um, as of as of the 17th, which is two days ago, um, we have an overall 101 million dollar box office uh well actually worldwide to- so that's just in america that's just in america uh worldwide about a 204 yeah and you're talking about a budget of 89 million obviously a lot of promotion into that so let's say all in because there's a lot of promotion for this like 150 million for the entire movie mm-hmm. uh, so they're making their money back and, and by the way this is going to have especially even though it's not quote unquote like the oscar type of movie um that's sad and depressing and soul searching <laughs> right it's gonna have legs and in fact that's what people talk about the, the article was in, in fact talking about just the longevity of musicals mm-hmm. and the, uh something we talked about last time around was repeat viewing yeah rewashability factor i watched this four times yes absolutely i agree and going off of um, musicals some of the greatest films are also musicals. Yeah, it's like you had Chicago, that was 2003. You had Singing in the Rain and Sound of Music. I mean, there's so many musicals that people actually do love. And it's been decades since them. And I think this is a film that can be one of those. Um, it definitely can work its way up to a rewatchable film. When we, in, a, in the next 50 years, we're still going to be watching this film. Um, maybe it's not true to the story, fine. But it's true to music, and that's awesome. That's awesome, um, and and I, I love it because it you remember just about everything that happens. Every song had a purpose. Every character had a purpose to the film. Absolutely. Um, on Rotten Tomatoes, people are overall split. It's about fifty five percent, and in the criticism being what we've already pointed out: the Greatest Showman tries hard to dazzle the audience. With a Barnum-style sense of wonder, but at the expense of its complex subjects, far more intriguing real-life story. I think there's a movie to be made of that, but I don't mind that this is different. No, I don't mind. From that. Um, if you can like separate yourself from like the actual historical accuracies of the story, the yeah, Rotten Tomatoes might be on the lower side, but the actual audience reception of it is super high. Cinema mm-hmm. score is A. Um, the audience score for Rotten Tomatoes is like in the 90s. It's it's huge. People do love this film, and it's getting the word of mouth because when it starts, when they release, I would call this it the singing word of the, I would the, the, the singing yes, mouth. The singing mouth. When this film actually was released, it was released on December 20th. It was supposed to be. Um, it was a Christmas release for the rest of the country, but we're in LA. We get it earlier, fortunately. So I saw it. Um, it only made $8 million the first weekend. Those are numbers for a flop. Those really are numbers for a flop. 
And that was the weekend leading up to Christmas. So a lot of people are going to see it. People are traveling. People are with their family. Yeah, it may not have been the greatest weekend to release it. But the week after, the the weekend after Christmas, this movie actually jumped up by 88%. Movies never go up the week after. Yeah, we talk about 80% after. drops. Yeah, we talk about 80% drops, not 80% jumps. And from there, it's been going increasing for the amount of... Uh, theaters that they had this has one of the better legs of um film distribution to money making ratio i mean i think we'll see this in theaters till like the end of february i sure hope so and i know there's movie i know there's movies that like last like star wars the last jedi there's a lot of movies that carry over movies Mm -hmm. um after they've been released overall but i'm talking about like in still mainstream movie plexes it will stay yeah, and also the cool thing is they just released the sing-alongs of, uh, in certain select theaters of this. So that's another reason for people who watched it the first time, listened and downloaded the soundtrack and listened to it a million times like I did, now knows the music and the songs and where everything is happening, can go back to the movie to sing along with it. And I everybody else in the movie theater. Yes, I did. Uh, I went to a sing-along this past weekend for this film. It was awesome. People were singing. People got up and danced and cheered. The cast themselves, uh, so like Zendaya, Zac Efron, Kiala Settles, who played the bearded lady, they actually went to AMC theaters with Michael Gracie to some of the sing-alongs. Surprised the whole audience. They didn't know they were going. And everyone's singing. If you watch the, if you follow the Greatest Showman accounts, there's actual videos of the whole theater standing up and singing during the sing-alongs so that's even better promotion when people are going back to sing it absolutely i couldn't agree more oh i loved this film could you tell (laughs) well so did a lot of people so you're not not alone on that as far as golden globes because that's in our immediate history we've got award season still approaching but we can talk about the globes it was nominated for best actor um, it was nominated for Best Motion Picture in a Musical or Comedy, Costume Design, and also it did win Best Original Song. So that was the only thing it won for, but um, it was great to be supported nonetheless. Yeah. Oh, the wardrobe was fantastic. We could talk quickly about <laughs> the wardrobe. Let's, I know we're talk about wrapping that. up. Sure. But uh, Ellen, um, Mira Janik, she did fantastic. I mean, everyone had their, their own individual characters and their personalities. Um, she's a big Swarovski crystal freak. She loves crystals. So she says there was over uh, 60,000 Swarovski serious crystals. Zerus. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. But Swarovski's crystals in this movie. Mostly on uh, Jenny Lynn's uh, wardrobe and on Zendaya's character um but pt barnum his his red jacket very i mean there's a reason why i'm wearing red today it's the closest thing i had to pt barnum's look uh his jacket had um luscious cashmere coats red uh, rich velvet suits um silk ascots and custom made buttons that that were gold in in color it just showed that like a prestigious look and it also had to move it Hugh Jackman because it's one thing to dress the part it's another thing to actually act and perform in um, the costumes Beauty and the Beast Emma Watson she said 
the the memorable yellow dress that everyone knows Belle's character. She wanted to be movable. She had to run in it. Like she wanted it to breathe so she can run. Um, and they did the same thing with P.T. Barnum's character. That like they gave it room so he can move around. Um, Jenny Lynn's costume. They actually used a silk satin Zahar Mered wedding dress for for the skirt part. Um, they deconstructed it because, and there was also a corset. So Rebecca says she she says she wasn't really eating because she had to be in a corset singing, which is um, yeah. Here's a picture of it. Yeah, look at that. That's great. Um, yeah, she had to be in a corset, which is actually really hard too because you're singing from the diagram. Uh, diaphragm diaphragm you're singing from the diaphragm and you're the opera singer but you're in a corset that's just a paradox in, in itself but there, there were well, i'm sure a lot of people of, had to do that yeah in that day, so you know yeah kudos to everyone who's ever had to do that right but when she wasn't in the the luscious um dresses when she was in the prestigious eye of all the people she was in more earth tone colors so when we saw them at this Cincinnati house and this, that's when she decides to, to leave the tour and all that um, they dressed her in like purples and earth tones um, to, to show that she has a seductress type of side and a more threatening type of side mm. we saw that we saw that uh, Ann Wheeler's character had 14,000 crystals on hers who knew <laughs> uh, l- there were um, lilacs stretched satin leotards and uh orchid purple satin um that fit with her her character she also had a move because she was doing trapeze work but she also had the, the pink red uh, pinkish wig on so it, it had to be an outfit that balanced out her hair um and then the oddities like the bearded lady um she wore a silk taffeta type of dress that actually had a flowery print on it but Michael Gracie didn't like it, and they turned the didn't like the print, so they turned the uh, dress inside out, and that's what became the purple dress that everyone has knows and and loves. Um, Yeah, that that was more of a uh, serendipitous type of finding. It wasn't supposed to be purple; it was supposed Hmm. to be actually printed. But it works for her character, and then you know all the other other oddities. They had their individual looks. Um, like the the albinos had like a waxy look. The the golden woman had like a, a lot of gold, uh, reflective, shiny makeup on. The wardrobe was fantastic, especially with the just the spectacle and the environment that they were in. The colors matched everything. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, the colors! Yes, it was very vibrant to say the least, and I, I thought that matched very well. Yes, vibrant colors. In um, the wardrobe and just in the cities alone, the locations. It had a very warm feeling. Yes. Um, the, you know, an orange hue overall that brought about life and warmth and so forth and not cold. Yeah. So. And even like the, the buildings of New York and, and the big moon that was there uh, on the blue backdrops. Gorgeous. Also, did you know the, the buildings where there's the sweeping shot of over the all the Brooklyn buildings? Those were actually miniatures. Look at that. Bring back old school. Yeah, which was actually cool. If you guys watch the uh, HBO making a special of this, because I certainly did, uh, they they actually used computers and designed the the looks of all the buildings, but then used 3D printers to build 
the actual miniatures to print them. And then they actually had uh, painters and sculptors um, actually hand detailing all the all the buildings. And then they shot over the miniatures. And that's the cityscape. Brilliant. I love this film. Very cool. Well, any final thoughts before we wrap out? I love this film. I it needs to be out on Blu-ray right now so well, I can it's watch. It's got it a little again. bit of money to make first. I know. And then you will get it. I know. I love this film. Definitely one of my top films, if not my top film of 2017. I watched it at a great time in my life because it's everything I needed. Okay. I think a lot of people I did. I think a lot of people did. All right. Well, thank you guys as always. Please do comment below. Let us know your thoughts and opinions, your favorite song, and uh, maybe some of your favorite musicals. Why not? In the meantime, if you guys want to interact and correspond with us, you can, of course, at DMovie1701. That's Dimitri, who is not here, but he'd be happy to chat with you. Also, at Serafini TV. Yes. And my favorite song plays. Yes. And I am at Phil Svitek, and we, of course, are here at the Popcorn Talk Network. We are... We are Anatomy of a Movie. Thank you guys as always. Next week we've got Paddington 2 and Molly's Game. And before the Oscars come, we hope to have covered every single sort of big movie that I'm sure you guys are dying to talk about, as well as some of the other ones that keep coming out. In the meantime, there's a whole library for you guys to browse through, so don't hesitate. A lot of Hugh Jackman movies. A lot of Rebecca Ferguson movies. A lot of Rebecca Ferguson movies. We talked about Beauty and the Beast. We got that in there. Uh, We've got some of the other musicals, so definitely check us out. Thank you guys as always. Until next time. All the shine of a thousand spotlights. All the stars. Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.